This podcast is brought to you by Esri and it's produced in collaboration with GovExec Studio 2G. Today's data-informed agencies are tasked with making quick and accurate decisions, and they're turning to GIS to gather insights and get answers. Explore the many ways Esri's GIS and mapping solutions can help your agency embrace a data-filled future at go.esri.com forward slash podcast one Today's government agencies provide quality experiences and services to their constituents. More and more, that requires the implementation of AI and automated tools, from chatbots and virtual assistants to enhanced mapping and monitoring capabilities. These innovations empower government agencies to do more with less, and more importantly, provide citizens and staff with services where and when they need them. But there's a bit of a caveat here. You see, while AI has all this potential, it also comes with a number of risks and challenges. Incomplete data sets, human error during the data training process, these things can lead to biased algorithms. And if we're not careful, AI can end up doing more harm than good. So how can government agencies prevent these biases while continuing to innovate? We're about to find out. I'm Tara Lerman, Deputy Editor of Branded Content at GovExec, and it's my pleasure to introduce Machine Morality, a new podcast from Esri and GovExec Studio 2G, where we'll get to the bottom of some of government's biggest ethical AI challenges. In this three-part series, we'll listen in as experts on AI and ethics from government and industry alike discuss how defense and intelligence leaders can strategically implement the latest AI tools and technologies while ensuring the technology is used in a way that serves all populations, fairly and equally. This episode will draw on a recent webcast from Defense One and INSA, underwritten by Esri, entitled AI and Ethics, Mitigating Unwanted Bias, where experts discuss some of today's most pressing hurdles for AI and government, and how we can begin to address them together. Let's check it out. Hello, everyone, and thank you for joining us. My name is Patrick Tucker, and I'm the technology editor at Defense One, and it is my great pleasure to welcome you to today's webcast, AI and Ethics, Mitigating Unwanted Bias, presented by INSA and Defense One, underwritten by Esri. Today, we'll discuss issues related to bias throughout the analytics cycle, including the creation and use of AI algorithms, data sets being used in AI models, and how to assess the output of AI analysis. Joining us today, we have Dr. Kimberly Bauer, Senior Analytic Data Scientist for Policy and Governance at the Directorate for Analysis at the Defense Intelligence Agency, or DIA. Alka Patel, Chief of Responsible AI at the Department of Defense's Joint Artificial Intelligence Center. Christy Scott, Privacy and Civil Liberties Officer at the Central Intelligence Agency. And Barry Zuloff, Chief of the Solutions Group at ODNI and Executive Secretary at the National Intelligence Analysis Board, as well as Mikel Rodriguez, Machine Learning Researcher at METER. So thank you all for joining us. Let me turn to you, Alka, because you're in charge of this huge deal challenge over at the Defense Department. Tell us a little bit about how you're applying these principles to vendor outreach. And if there's anything new on that front that you can tell us about how you're taking the principles that you have and moving those into a dialogue that you have with some of these private sector companies that are going to be developing tools for the Defense Department. 
Thanks, Patrick. And I really appreciate you level setting everyone in terms of the fact that we do have principles. I think oftentimes I am educating a number of individuals that, believe it or not, the government and the DOD has these documents as well as obviously the IC. And I think the other point that I really want to double down on that you made is that these principles that we have at the DOD, they build and complement existing legal requirements, existing ethical frameworks, existing policies. And so these are not principles that are just taken in isolation or apply or add on to like business ethics principles. But these are really principles that add on to a really robust and detailed infrastructure around existing laws and policies. So I think that's a really important construct when we think about how do we actually apply these principles, because there are other controls and safeguards through those mechanisms that allow us to do it. And before I jump into the question, which is really important, I do want to sort of level set a little bit too, just to weave the thread around the bias aspect and what we're doing on the acquisition side. When we think about these principles, for example, I do also want to highlight that they apply across the entire AI product lifecycle, as we've defined at the DOD, across design, development, deployment, and use. And so I think oftentimes people, well, everyone, when we think about bias, everyone thinks about the bias in data, which of course is a critical component, but there's also the aspect of potential bias creeping into the decision-making process across the entire product lifecycle, right? Constantly when we're given choices that we have to make and there have to be some trade-offs and as we're making those choices, our lived experiences play into that. Let me turn to you, Barry, because you have a very different and equally challenging job. Analytic ombudsman is a new job title that I think a lot of people aren't familiar with. Tell us a little bit about the data bias problem in terms of intelligence data that might inform AI algorithms within the IC. There's a big concern about politicization of intelligence that's, as we're just living in a very political time right now with a lot of temperatures turned up very high. How do you view this problem of identifying and potentially excluding bias from what's supposed to be a purely objective process, which is machine analysis of data? How do you go about So let me just say that the ombudsman function has been around since 2005, but it usually doesn't go out in the public. We prefer it not to be that way. The politicization issue did come out into the public over this past year. And if anyone's interested, you can Google my last name. It's pretty unique, Z-U-L-A-U-F and the word ombudsman, and you'll come up with a report that I did. It was unclassified on political bias that was imposed on the intelligence community relating to Russian or Chinese interference in the elections. So that's just a brief commercial. You'll look at that. And I will tell you that the new DNI, Avril Haines, came in with a mandate from the president to make sure that that kind of thing stops. That's sort of overconscious political bias. But there's an issue in artificial intelligence that can make unintentional bias. Let me explain what I mean by that. I'm the first to say that artificial intelligence is a boon to intelligence analysts. I've been doing it for 35 years, and the ability of AI to sort through the volume, velocity, and variety of information that's out there is unprecedented. We can't do our job without it. We're imaging the Earth 24-7, 365. No human being can go through that information without the machines to help. But humans still have to provide the context for providing that information, making sure that it is free of bias to decision makers. We can't just let the machines do it. So it's only machine work paired with human judgment that can provide objective analysis. Here's the kind of thing that we need to guard against. This is very timely. There was something in CNN Business, and it was also in the New York Times, about an AI scientist. Her name was Timnit Gebru, 
working at Google, she was noticing that the text search that Google was working on, I think it's large language models, was unintentionally absorbing the bias that humans put into text when they write it and they post things on the web. And that model had to be corrected to, to account for those biases. So we can't just take it where it comes from. It's not just in text. And what was going on is that algorithm was looking over millions of pages of text on the web, producing something that looked like English, but it was picking up language biases. It also works in visual functions, facial recognition. We're all being recognized now that we're all on Google here. We're all going in somebody's database somewhere. And there's a company called Clearview that I know of that they're working on trying to avoid racial and gender bias in facial recognition because there are law enforcement organizations and national security organizations using facial recognition based on images caught from the web or from ATM photographs or from driver's license photographs to be able to identify bad guys. The software doesn't do all that well with recognizing non-white male faces. It's getting better, but it needs to be corrected. And what the human needs to do just to be very precise is to understand the inherent bias that exists in the software and not just accept it at face value. What role does diversity play, to your mind, in helping, among the workforce, in helping to reduce potential for that sort of unintentional bias entering into AI models and entering into the data sets that inform those models? This is a little bit of a sad story. It's the other part of what was going on with this scientist, Tim Gebrus. She's African-American, and part of the other thing that she was arguing was, in addition to the bias built into the algorithms unintentionally, that Google and other organizations like it weren't very diverse in the people that they hire. And she actually got fired, I mean, for lack of a better word, for raising this as an issue that needed to be addressed. Diversity in the workforce is important. And this is another big issue that Avril Haines is bringing out as she takes over the intelligence community. If you have a diverse workforce, you're going to be bringing diverse ways of thinking about things. And one example that Gabriel talked about, there was a previous version, this is old now, of Google's facial recognition software that identified, I think the number was 80 photographs of African-Americans and all by itself put them in a storage folder that was titled Gorillas. Yeah. Somebody taught the machine how to do that and that really should be caught. Christy, please. You had a thought on this. Yeah, I was just going to underscore the diversity point. A few years ago, the Federal Privacy Council invited Dr. LaTanya Sweeney from Harvard University, who does a lot of analysis on diversity and AI in the scientific community. And one of the things that she said that I thought was profound was that the most powerful people in Washington are the coders and developers who are designing the AI and not necessarily the lawmakers who may not always understand it in the best way. And I really believe that aspect to be true. And the coders and designers and the lawyers and the privacy and civil liberties experts all have to reflect the diversity in society to really get to the heart of these issues. Otherwise, my personal belief is that they will continue to perpetuate. I really think that 
one of the pieces that was included in the National Security Artificial Intelligence Commission report that was really key and critical was to develop a pipeline and a workforce as a national security imperative to really look at these issues. And I think that conversation about including diversity and inclusion within the technical space is really important. We can't talk about bias and mitigating that without having a open and honest conversation about diversity. Kim, tell us a little bit about what you're doing at DIA and some of the challenges of taking an analyst workforce that has been trained on very traditional methods of analysis and upskilling them to work with potentially coders, potentially programmers, or to work with modelers or statisticians to change the way they perform analysis. What's the big challenge there and how does bias enter into that? Thank you for that. I think that largely what we're trying to do is really create fit for you analysis that's built against the problem set and what it's doing. And so ICD-203 and the analytics standards really set a strong foundation and are the basis for the ethics of our business. We are used to dealing with uncertainty. We're used to dealing with incomplete or inaccurate or misleading data. So how do we then take that to the next level and really integrate these tools that are doing some of the things that analysts have traditionally done themselves or in conjunction with other parts of the community and make sure all of that information that you have is captured. Part of what we're doing is we've implemented a new career field specialty within the analysis directorate. And what that is, is all source analytic methods. And so what we're using with that for is bringing in a subset of the workforce that really has a strong data science, mathematics, statistics background to help build out some of these methods. Some other things that we're doing are trying to establish a governance framework that really sets the stage to be able to build these tools, understand what they need, and produce finished intelligence. So we talked a little bit about diversity and equity, and largely those discussions go to the very important things of all of the different things that you would think of under EEO. But I think it's very important to also think about those viewpoints of intelligence analysts. We have an obligation to collaborate across the community because we have such uncertainty in our underlying data, because there's different values of credibility and reliability. We have unclassified data and classified data that we have to somehow merge into the processes. So we're really trying to establish a way that we can have cross-functional teams to capture the diversity of analysts across the agency and actually all professionals within the IC because each are gonna have a critical component. And I think the lesson that we learned pretty strongly is that language is hard. So when you bring people together, they're all speaking a completely different language. When I went to graduate school years ago, there was a foreign language requirement and computer science or GIS could be counted as that foreign language requirement. And there's a reason for that. When we bring groups of people together from the legal community, from the traditional analytic community, from data scientists all across the spectrum, when you say something, it can mean very different things. For example, accuracy. Accuracy to an analyst is gonna mean how well are we doing representing what we really have. Accuracy for most data scientists 
may be a metric for the precision of the particular model that they use within part of the algorithm. How do you really bring that together? Let me turn to you, Mikhail, because in talking previously, I learned that Mikhail had what I think is like the coolest job that anybody could have, which was red teaming Project Maven, finding the gaps and the vulnerabilities in the Defense Department's like showcase AI applications is an amazing experience. And I wonder if you can talk to us a little bit about the need for red teaming, particularly new models or new AI solutions, whether or not you feel like institutions within the defense establishment or the intelligence establishment are doing it enough. And also speak a little bit in your experience as a red teamer to the vulnerability that is bias, because bias presents an actual problem. It's not just a potentially embarrassing problem when your algorithm outputs some result that is horrible, <laughs> like cosmetically and in terms of PR, it's an actual vulnerability. So can you talk a little bit to those? Absolutely. Alka started us by framing, in, in, and that I think is super important that, that you have organizations like the Jake and also projects like Maven that are doing something that I think is very exciting, right? They're pioneering in many fronts. But one of the things they're doing is bringing in, like you mentioned, these kind of non traditional contractors, and that's very exciting. So we've been watching that happen. But at the same time, what we've realized is that is now we have this big challenging problem of kind of securing the broader AI supply chain. So, how do we address that? Barry talked, and, and so did Christy, about all the challenges of kind of left of algorithm, all these things, almost all the companies that we're working with never start their AI systems in tabula rasa. Instead, they're using your things like pre-training with open data sets. So there's all these potentials for vulnerabilities to being introduced, everything from kind of data poisoning that's intentional to things after the system has been deployed where you could corrupt the system by feeding it wrong data that's even hard, very hard to detect. So this is an area that has been a growing challenge that we've had to address. But luckily, at least from my vantage point, it's been one where there's been really strong forward-leaning collaborations and action jointly between the intelligence community and DOD. This, from the beginning, these Pathfinder programs, instead of setting the problem to deal with later, if you think about the internet, we kind of thought about security as an afterthought, and we're still dealing with that issue. I think that when it comes to AI, at least in the government side, we've seen some leaders that have really put this forward. And the way we've addressed this, one of them is having independent teams that are not tied to some of the commercial vendors and then taking an independent look almost from an adversarial mindset. And even looking at things like privacy and bias from that adversarial mindset, what can you do to almost weaponize a bias? And like you mentioned, Patrick, there's the ethical concerns that I'm not an expert. I'll defer to Alka on those fronts. But there are, from a security perspective, you could weaponize this bias. It's a real issue in the sense that the companies that we're working with they're really producing incredible algorithms, but they tend to be for types of problems where you have these more balanced data sets, right? Cats versus dogs. It's not where they're looking for what we call, you know, say like a rare target, a, a transporter after launcher, which you might only have one or two of. So we naturally in both the, the DOD and IC have these highly unbalanced data sets that are just the Achilles heel, a lot of these existing kind of crop of AI systems. Okay, let me turn to you because you're doing a lot of this interfacing, not only with other partner nations who I think maybe appreciate this approach, sharing similar values, but also the private sector. When you go to them and try to educate them on DOD ethical guidelines and your expectations, what is their receptiveness like? Are they like, oh, okay, that sounds great. And we're totally excited to meet this higher level of requirements. Are they like, wow, that's going to cost a lot of money for us to figure out how to do that. We're barely exiting series A and we don't know that we can. What are some of the reactions that you get when you go to the private sector with the ethical guidelines? 
That's a really good question and something we try to think about every day because I think one of the things that we're cognizant of is the need for flexibility around this. So first of all, we don't have specific requirements and we're starting this out as a discussion because I think every organization is on its own journey and trying to figure out what right looks like. And so we're learning as we go through this every day and just like internally within the DOD, there are different levels of maturity and or resourcing to address some of this. It's the same as we go horizontally as we work with our industry partners. And so I think the first building block, frankly, from my perspective, is education and awareness. And then once you can cross that bridge, all right, what are some basic tools and checklists or like these documents we're talking about? And then how do we build on it? It's not a situation where we're going to say like, all right, here are the 20 things that you all have to do and go figure it out. It's more of like, how do we go on this journey together? Because there's no point in one going ahead and leaving others behind because ultimately this is all an interrelated ecosystem, right? And so we've got to make sure that we're doing this consistently and together throughout. I want to thank you all for being part of this today. This was really great. And I would also like to turn the program now over to James Hansen, Vice President and Publisher of NextGov, for a conversation with our underwriter, Esri. So thank you all, and we'll see you next time. Thank you, Patrick. That was a tough act to follow. It was a terrific panel and conversation on everything from the DOD and ICAI ethical principles to workforce diversity to the entire AI life cycle. Again, my name is James Hansen. I'm the Vice President and Publisher of NextGov, the Federal Technology News Division of Government Executive Media Group, and I'm really excited to be joined today by Brady Klein. Brady has over 20 years of experience applying software and data science to government challenges around the globe. He's currently supporting GeoAI at Esri, a cross-sector business development resource for federal defense and intelligence agencies. Brady, thanks for being here with me today. Thanks for having me, James. Before we get started, can you tell our audience just a quick intro, a little bit about your role, what you do, and certainly define GeoAI for our audience? Let's start with what is GeoAI? It is truly where geography intersects with artificial intelligence, machine learning, and truly with deep learning. My role is to act as an advisor to not just our internal teams, but also to all of our customers worldwide on how they can leverage artificial intelligence to answer the demanding questions that they have. That's great. So diving into it, the most recent National Security Commission on AI report notes in a number of places that achieving acceptable AI performance often is linked to the decision to accept some level of risk. We heard it on the panel with all of our DOD IC representatives about managing that risk, but I'd love to hear from you. What is an acceptable level of risk or bias risk? I think it's really interesting because as the panel was talking, we really find out that it depends, right? It's such an easy answer to give you is, oh, well, it just depends on what that could be. But it really goes down to, I think there was a good example of saying, sometimes there's operations that we're running these models from that are inherently less risky. If I'm looking for cars in a parking lot, that's a little less risky. I, I can accept a bit of a failure in that. But then it comes down to these more, let's just call them operationally significant models. So things where we have limited data, but they are more life or death, let's just call it critical. Well, there, I, my acceptability of risk becomes much diminished. I can't have risk into that. So I think that it's really just measuring the question, right? What am I looking for? And what's a good level of risk for answering that question? 
And then as you're determining what that is, and I imagine that that has to come up front in terms of what the challenge that you're addressing or the way that you're supporting a particular warfighter out in the field. But so as you're doing that, where does that take place? What are some best practices or tools that agencies can use to ensure a proper risk assessment throughout that AI lifecycle? That's a really interesting challenge that we're going to face kind of moving forward is this ability to assess, or let's just call it what it is. It's an audit. How do I audit the risk factors of an AI model? And again, yes, it's going to depend on how I do that based off of whether I'm looking at a true deep learning computer vision model, or whether that is more of a predictive big data problem. So the biggest piece to managing it is understanding one, where biases are going to come in. And then two, it's understanding the questions like we had mentioned before, because that's where we're going to elevate to this level of acceptable risk. But you truly have to know where you're starting from. So you got to know the beginning point and the end point so that you can document really how you can go about and do a backwards audit. And how does the process change when you have very complex AI programs? So if you're adding in a bunch of new data sets on top of old data sets, you have multiple people touching those data sets or those algorithms. How does the process change? Yeah. So, you know, you actually inherit one other major risk there, and that's the security of the model. When you start getting into these very complex models where you have multiple analysts working on that, which is great, right? So that's one of the ways you mitigate some of the biases. And I will kind of highlight back to one of the conversations and Christy really brought it up a lot in the session and that was the diversity of the workforce. So not to go completely off topic, but that diversity of the workforce, it's working it. Now I have the right amount of people with the appropriate backgrounds to identify those risks and really just engage in a very different way. I need to secure my model development. I need to have diversity in the engineers that are doing it, the data scientists that are building it. And inherently, I need to have my outcomes expected. I know where I'm going. I need to know where I began with. And a lot of this is going to come into the data pipeline and making sure that I'm bringing in the data in an appropriate way, right? So if I'm bringing in spatial temporal data, I want to ensure that that spatial temporal formula that I've used, right? Whatever that happens to be, it's consistent across all of the data. So there's a lot of data manipulation and (laughs) non-confusion to make those links for the data so that you're looking at the appropriate data to start with, right? It's before you even get into the deeper sides of what happens when I nest one model on top of the next model. That was an excerpt from Defense One's webcast, AI and Ethics, Navigating Unwanted Bias. You can view the full webcast series at www.defenseone.com. Thanks to our listeners of this premiere episode of Machine Morality. If you like this episode, you can find more on govexec.com forward slash podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. Be sure to join us next time as we confront the challenges of geospatial analytics and how to remove bias from the mapping process. Thank you for listening to Machine Morality. Machine Morality is produced by GovExec Studio 2G in collaboration with Esri. GIS is revolutionizing how government agencies operate. 
From public safety to national security, today's agencies are looking to dynamic mapping to help them visualize data and glean real-time insights. Esri's GIS and mapping solutions are here to help. Find out how at go.esri.com forward slash podcast one.